Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Well, during this uh, Advent season, we've been exploring the theme of joy. And our kind of overarching theme has been joy to the world. Um, as Jesus followers, our definition of joy is rooted in our relationship with God. And the roots are strong, not, not because joy is something we can create ourselves, but actually the opposite reason, because it's something that has been given to us. Joy is actually the fruit of the root of our relationship. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the relationship that God has with us and that what he pours into and produces with us. Uh, a, a tree, uh, when it has its root in the ground, it doesn't say to itself, I'm going to produce fruit. It is something that happens through its roots, because of where it is planted. And it's the same for us as believers in Christ. So let me ask you this this morning. As we look at and anticipate uh, Christmas morning, I've got, I've got four kids at home, so let me tell you the anticipation is strong. Uh, that my kids, for so many years, they have been, uh, love, what they love to do is they love to give each other gifts. And when they were really little, um, they had no money. And so we would either take them like to the Dollar Tree to pick out a present, or they would make presents for each other. And one of the most joyful parts of, of Christmas for us, for Jessica and I, wasn't the gifts that we gave our kids, seeing them open that, but seeing how they gave each other gifts. And the thrill that they would express as they opened uh, something made out of cardboard that their brother made, you know, or a painted rock from their sister. Uh, and they would be so excited to receive these things. So Christmas, there's this anticipation, and there's this joy that happens. But on the backside of Christmas, sometimes there's a letdown. Some of you know what I'm talking about. All this anticipation, all this buildup to Christmas, and then the day after, it's done. And the lights start to come down, and the tree gets put away. The presents are no longer out there. And there, there can be kind of a, a, a wondering uh, a, a pit of our kind of heart that feels not as full as it did the day before. So let me ask you this. What fulfills your life? What makes you feel at peace, content, joyful? Does your mind go to what you don't have? Sometimes it does. Does it go to what you do have but what you wish you had more of? And certainly our culture is designed to make us want the next thing, more of what we have. This morning, we're going to look at uh, a story of two kings. And what we're going to see in these two kings is kind of a contrast in the way that they lead and what their kingdoms look like under their authority. One king, by the world's standards, had it all, but really had nothing at all. And the other, well, the other king hardly qualified as a king by the world's standards. But this king had everything. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 this morning? 
Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, there are some in the pew in front of you. The shortcut, if you're using a pew Bible, is page 828. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, which is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Matthew chapter 2, this will probably be a fairly familiar story to some of you. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So many of us have heard this story before. Our nativity scenes depict this story, although let's be honest, most of them are a little bit inaccurate. If you notice, the Magi did not appear at the stable in Bethlehem. This was most likely a year or more later. They appeared to him at a house. But we're familiar with this story. So I just want to kind of reset the context a little bit here. Uh, first of all, when the Magi saw this star, they began to travel from a far-off place. And um, Jerusalem was where the ruling party of Israel and the lead religious leaders, the chief priests, as mentioned in the text, all lived. So naturally, when the Magi came looking for this king that was to be born, they would go to the capital city, to Jerusalem. That's where they started. That was their first stop. And so they begin to ask around, hey, we've heard about this king. We're wondering where he is. Now, magi, often called wise men in our nativity scenes, these were influential and powerful men. Most likely they came from Persia, which would be modern-day Iraq and Iran. These were men who studied astrology, and in some contexts, they would have been known as wise men or even as magicians because their knowledge was so great in how the world and the heavens worked. Considering the influence that they had and the gifts that they brought, there is almost zero chance that they were traveling alone. Men of this influence would have had a pretty good-sized entourage, especially considering they were carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they went to Jerusalem, these wise men, very influential. They stopped there, and then they meet this man named Herod. 
Now, most of us have only ever heard of Herod in this story, but we actually have quite a bit of historical writings about Herod apart from Scripture. He is a known historical character from 2,000 years ago. Um, while his kingdom, uh, his kingship was over the region of Judea, he was under the authority of Rome. So he served at Rome's pleasure. Um, Herod himself wasn't uh, a Jew, but he was very friendly towards the people that he was ruling, the Jewish people. And he learned how important the religious leaders of that day were in order for him to really lead as a king. He had to also um, kind of patronize them a little bit. One of the most um, significant things that Herod accomplished during his kingship was he rebuilt the Jewish temple that had been destroyed. So talk about favor, right? He gave the Jewish people what they want, but he always did these things for a purpose, and that purpose was to strengthen his authority and strengthen his power. What we just read, we also get a glimpse of the mental state of Herod. When he hears the words that a king is to be born, and he sees the influential people that have come, his response is paranoia and fear. Um, Because of historical writings, we actually know that this is not a new um, issue in Herod's life. He has been ruling out of paranoia and fear for some time. Think of that boss that is threatened by somebody under him that's doing a good job. Think of that president or that ruler of a nation that if anybody disagrees with him or crosses him, they're done. Their job is over. Herod was like that, but even worse. History records that at one time his paranoia um, had grown so much that he killed his own wife and two of his sons. So this is important to know because when he hears that a king is coming, he's not going to react very kindly to this. The last group that we see in this story is Jesus and his family. Jesus has already been born at this time. And what eventually happens is after the Magi come, Herod then makes a decree. Because the Magi don't go back to him and say where Jesus is. But he knows he's in the region of Bethlehem. And so Herod, in his paranoia and his fear, he says, Okay, here's the plan. Since we don't know who this kid is, we're going to kill every boy under the age of two. And he does. And so Jesus and his family, like so many refugees today, they have to flee for their lives. And they escape Herod's paranoia and flee to Egypt. Eventually Herod dies, and Jesus and his family return to Joseph's hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus leads, for the most part, an obscure life out of the sight of paranoid Roman kings. Now, if this were a Hollywood story, it would set up for a pretty amazing turnaround, wouldn't it? I could see the rewrite now. While Jesus grew, he was secretly educated in the art of Roman politics and war. He became a leader of, among men and the gritty people of Nazareth. His father's trade as a carpenter would give him a unique ability to see the weaknesses and the defenses of Roman cities. And so these things combined with the, the tenacity that he inherited from his mother, they would make him the greatest revolutionary in history in the Middle East 
And that, children, is what we celebrate every Christmas. Right? Like, doesn't that feel like a Marvel story in the making? But that's not the kind of king that Jesus would be. Jesus' birth was first announced to shepherds on the night watch. His soldiers were fishermen, tax collectors, and religious zealots. Jesus' greatest influence was among the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. And don't even get started on his teachings, Jesus' teachings, to love your enemy, (laughs) to put others before yourself. What kind of king is this? Would Jesus be the greatest revolutionary in history? Yes, he would. But not like Herod could ever imagine. At the announcement of his birth, there's three titles that are used of Jesus. And we find these in both Matthew 1 and Luke 2. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, the first title that's used of him is Emmanuel which means God with us. Like, unlike so many other religions, God's desire is not to hold us at arm's length like a king sitting on a throne, but to come up close and personal. That humanity would know and be known by God. Jesus, the infinite God, came into our space so that we might know him And we might experience true fulfillment. He wasn't a king who stayed in his palace, but one who entered into our poverty, the poverty of humanity. Another title we get of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, John 3 and Acts 5 is that of Savior. The reason so many superhero movies capture our attention, and and really they capture the attention of almost every culture, is because deep inside of us, we don't have the power we know we need. We can't save ourselves. And at some point in our lives, we all recognize this, and then we we have to ask the question of what we do about it. We struggle in this life. We struggle against unseen viruses, against climate change, against economic challenges. You name it, we are not powerful enough to control it. If anything that we've realized even in the last month is with all of our scientific knowledge coming to bear on a virus, it evades us. We're powerless to defeat it. Any small aspect of control that you and I think we have can be exposed in an instant. I've been thinking about this recently as I've lost my father-in-law and my friend is about to, to, to give up his life. Unexpected, in an instant, that's it. Nothing that can be done. So the birth of Jesus shows us that we aren't alone, that God is with us, but it also shows us that there is a God who loves us and desires to save us. He has the power to do that. And the third description of who Jesus is, what kind of king he would be, is that of Messiah. While there are many problems that are manifested inside of us and around us and out out in the culture, 
the, the more critical issue that we have to deal with is right in here, deep within our soul. The reason we don't have peace and joy is because that we are broken and sinful people. And Herod is an illustration of this problem. Herod shows us that no matter how hard we try, we are powerless to create lasting peace. Herod has, had accomplished all these things, had, had patronized who he needed to patronize, had set up his kingdom in such a way, but yet he still didn't have peace. All it took was the birth of a child, and his world would come crashing down. Herod believed, as we do, that he could build his own way to fulfillment. And you know what? You probably believe that too. At the very least, I know that you struggle against that because we don't maybe live under Herod's rule, but the kingdoms of this world still offer the same way to peace and liberty. Work for it, earn it, learn it, take it. No matter what you have to do to get there, get there. You can fulfill yourself. If any country believes that lie, it is America. Which is why we have phrases like, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Get to work. You, you can be anything you want to be. And so we believe this lie, and we live this lie, and then one day we're confronted with the truth that it is a lie. That we can't bring ultimate peace and liberty in our lives. There's just no way to do it. When I was a kid, I grew up on the ocean, near the ocean, and um, I, one of my long-lasting memories is just building things in the sand on the coast. Um, and maybe some of you have spent some time in the ocean, and, and you know what I'm talking about. Just uh, the, the power of the waves far, not far off and, and the things that you could sculpt with wet sand. And, and uh, one of the things I, you know, I, I remember doing is digging holes in, right on the edge of of the beach because when I you dig a hole then water would come in and so then we would try and build up kind of walls around this hole and create it make it as deep as we could have you ever tried that before have you ever dug a hole kind of like this one of the things about this though is if you dig a hole like this too close to the water you can only get so deep and the sand starts to fill it back in and so the hole may get bigger but it doesn't really get any deeper. And I think this is a good illustration of what our lives look like when we try to find fulfillment apart from God. We dig and we dig and we dig and we try and we try and we try, and it just doesn't look like what we want it to look like. But Jesus gives us another way. The way to fulfillment is not through what we build up, but what he pours in. The kingship of Jesus is the key to lasting joy and peace. When the Magi came, they asked this question, where is the one born king of the Jews? The next time this phrase would be used of Jesus, king of the Jews, was in Matthew chapter 27. So 25 chapters later. And it was used by another Roman leader. You know who that Roman leader was? Pontius Pilate. 
standing before Pilate with his life hanging in the balance, he would ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It would be used one more time shortly after that question. Jesus was asked this question, and his supposed kingship looks like it's coming to an end. Matthew 27, verse 28 says, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. And took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. What type of person would do this to someone like Jesus? Herod? Sure. Pontius Pilate? Yeah. But so would you and I. When we choose the ways of the world, when we choose to follow somebody like Herod, and we reject Jesus, we participate in this same mocking, this same ridicule, this same doubt. What kind of king was Jesus? What kind of king would allow this to happen? When Jesus hung there beaten on the cross, he took something with him. He took our sin. This king with a crown of thorns hung there with the weight of humanity's sin on him. And with his last breath, Jesus said, it is finished. This is another way for saying, it is fulfilled. The penalty for sin has been paid. Savior, Messiah, God with us. This is what the kingship of Jesus came to accomplish. And Jesus accomplished it. This is good news. And time and again, Jesus did things in a way that nobody could ever imagine. But there's no need here to dream up a Hollywood rewrite. Because every person that had ever come before Jesus had died. But for Jesus, death wasn't the final answer. Jesus' demonstration of power was finalized when three days after it was finished, he overcame death. And the finished work on the cross became good news for all who trust King Jesus. And the kingship of Jesus isn't a better version of Herod's kingship. It's a radically new way based on the purpose and identity that God has had for you and me all along. So here's the big Christmas question. What king do you want to follow? I'm sure most of you have been told this story before. But I'm concerned. I'm concerned that the ways of Herod have crept into the American church. And that it has created a a type of Christianity that doesn't reflect Christ. A Christianity 
that has a Herod-like kind of paranoia and fear about it. And it's not driven by peace or joy of Jesus, but it's driven by things like Fox News or CNN, by a new sexual revolution or identity. Or it's driven by things like childish profanity that should never be uttered by people of God, like, let's go, Brandon. We can call these types of things, I think, the residue of Herod. It stuck around for a couple thousand years. For example, I believe today in our church, too many people have said yes to King Jesus, but they still still think things work like other kingdoms do. I see this residue of Herod uh, most often when people say things like, you know, Pastor Andrew, I'm just, I'm just not a very good Christian. As if that's some sort of excuse for not following Jesus. Do you really think it works that way? You needed a savior, so of course you're not good. The Christian life is not about your performance. That's the ways of Herod. But it's about presence. John, James 4.8 says, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. How much work does that take? Not a lot. But you do have to believe it in your heart. You do have to commit to it. You have to put your faith in Jesus. Some others in the church think that true fulfillment is something you've got to figure out. You you, you've tried all sorts of things to fulfill your life, and, and you know what? What I just need to do is I need to figure out, I need to figure out how to make this Jesus thing work. And so you try and you try. You go to X amount of Bible studies. You, you have your formulas and your things worked out. You've reduced following Jesus to some sort of methods. That's not it either. And ultimately what that lends to is this performance kind of driven Christianity that drives you in two directions. Apathy, like I don't know man, I just, I'll just go to church on Sunday and kind of let things fall where they may. Or anxiety, I don't know if I'm doing enough, I, I just thought a sinful thought, maybe God doesn't love me anymore, maybe this thing that happened to me, it's, it's my fault. And so what we've done is we've created a performance driven Christianity. And Jesus has just come. Close to me. So, church, let's clean off the residue of Herod and let's receive the fullness of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, I think, says it so perfectly. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. How much do you have to do when you look at this scripture? Jesus has done it all for you. He is the fullness that your heart desperately needs. So let me close with this. Did you notice where the Magi met Jesus? It wasn't the barn. It wasn't the manger. 
It was a house. A house. Before Jesus left the earth, he didn't say he was going to prepare a guest room in a palace. But he said, I am going to prepare a room in the house just for you. Now, sometimes when we think of that, we think of like the guest room, right? Or in my case, it's my son's room. Sorry, Trey, you're out of your room. We're going to turn. <laughs> Got to sleep on the floor tonight. But in the Jewish tradition, when somebody was, became a part of the family, often what would happen was they would add on to the house. They would build a room just for them. And this is what Jesus says to us. He goes before us to prepare a room in his house. You know, when you, if you were to come over to my house, we would ask you to take your shoes off before you come in. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I don't want the stuff that you walk through tracked all the way through my house. <laughs> it's, a, it's Pacific Northwest. It's wet. It's muddy. Take your shoes off at the, at the door. Don't bring that stuff in. But really, the main reason is we want you to stay a while. We want you to know that you're coming in as a friend. We want to kick your feet up. Be comfortable. And this is what Jesus wants for us. God's desire has always been to be a part of his family, to be friends with us. He's not a king who sits on a throne at a distance, but he is a savior who came among us so that we could be with him. And so Christmas reminds us that the God of the universe came down into our space, Emmanuel, to save us from our sin so that we can have true joy and peace. And this joy and peace, because it's given to us by an all-powerful king, it cannot be taken. It's ours forever, given to us by the king. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I pray that we would receive this word this morning, that we would shake off the residue of Herod in our lives, that we would take off our shoes and, and stay a while with you. Lord, that, that this, these artificial lines that have been drawn in our, in our lives between us and you, that they would disappear, that we would see you for the king that you are, a king whose soldiers were the, the lost and the hurting, the poor and the marginalized. A king who, who reaches out to us in love and who willingly gave his life so that we could experience true freedom, freedom from our sin, and true liberty, a life lived with peace and joy. This morning, Father, I ask for each person that's here, those that know you, that they might renew in their hearts their commitment to following in your ways. Shaking off the residue, Lord. Cleaning off their feet. And walking fully with you. And Lord, for those that have not placed their faith in you, I pray this morning, I pray for you if you are listening, that the true fulfillment that you desire in your life, you would find it in Jesus. In his forgiveness, in his freedom and redemption for your life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.